Well, uh, thank you everyone for coming. Sorry for last week. Uh, it was a bit providential that we canceled last week because we didn't have any childcare and there was no one to help with the sound and various reasons. So there were a lot of people gone last week. So it worked out well. So we are continuing on. Uh, this is class 6 of 11. And today we'll be covering the Edenic Covenant or also known as the Adamic Covenant depending on where at in the creation story you're referring to. So before we begin, I will pray and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness, for your holiness, for your character. We thank you and we, we ask that you would teach us through your word so that we can imitate you well, so that we can work to build your kingdom, to glorify you in all that we do. And we ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay. So, we've been going through, right, what is the essential story of the Bible? And that is the redemptive history that is God redeeming his kingdom through mankind. So you have a restoration of covenant is essentially the main theme of Scripture. So what we see, if that is indeed the main theme of Scripture, or a main theme, we can articulate it that way, then we would say the first covenant, the very first relationship that God establishes with man, is paramount. It's very important for us to understand how he relates to mankind going forward, and eventually how we will experience God in eternity. So in order to understand salvific history or redemptive history, we have to understand properly the first covenant. So that's our sort of our charge today. What is the nature of this first covenant? What is the nature of this kingdom? Well, the nature of the first covenant is one in which God works, sustains, and teaches. So we're going to be looking at several different aspects here. But God works... Then he sustains or supplies. And through both of those things, he's instructing or teaching. He's teaching Adam. So he works, sustains, and teaches. And incidentally, then, and this is the the 30,000 foot view, what Adam is able to do by observing these things, once Adam is created, is then he is charged with imitating God's creative activity. So he learns and sees, and and God audibly teaches him, how he is to work, how he is to sustain and keep the garden, and then also he learns how he ought to also then teach his uh, progeny, his children, his descendants. So we can see right from the beginning, if you read Genesis, Adam is clearly being instructed and being taught how he is to act, behave, and grow God's kingdom on top of how God has already established it. So this is where we as Christians understand this because we're charged with imitating Christ. And that is a fulfillment of Adam's charge to imitate Yahweh, to imitate God. So all that we're talking about here, the first covenant, is very much to do with man imitating God. Or learning from God. Man imitating God. And we can see this if we go through the creation account. So I'm going to go through several 
<clears throat> different passages from uh, Genesis chapter 2 through to Genesis chapter 3. They won't be in like perfect uh, chrono chronological order, um, but we're going to jump through those. A, a quick note about Genesis. When you read Genesis, you probably all know this. The first chapter is the creation account. And then what happens in chapter 2 is we actually backtrack to, to day 6. So two, chapter 2 is a fuller explanation of the day that God created Adam. So if you, if you read it and, and you're thinking, okay, this is just chronological, then you might think, what is happening here? So that's an important thing to understand, is that chapter 1 goes through the seven days of creation, and then chapter 2 sort of backtracks a little bit and fills out that creation account of mankind. So that's what's happening here in chapter 2. So I will begin at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And this is in regards to uh, the pattern of work. So how God works in creation, and then therefore how he tells mankind to work as well. So Genesis 2, starting at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Obviously we have the institution of the Sabbath. So six days of work God created for six days, and he rests on the seventh. And because he rests on the seventh, he makes that day holy. Therefore, Adam is charged with that same pattern of creative work, that same pattern of work. So he is charged to work the garden for seven days, and on this, excuse me, for six days, and on the seventh day he is to rest. Now he's also charged with doing various things for the garden, that is protecting it and guarding it. Now those charges obviously don't go by the wayside on the seventh day. It's not like he's running security for six days and then letting people in on the seventh. Although, perhaps, there is a wrinkle there where how did the serpent get into the garden? Perhaps the serpent entered the garden, unbeknownst to Adam, during a rest day. So that's, that's mere speculation on my point. But the, the point is that Adam is holding this pattern in high regard, that he's working for six days and then resting on the seventh. So he's imitating God, God's creative work. And therefore, all of the work of Israel and God's chosen people going forward keeps this same pattern. So not only does God establish from the very beginning a seven-day week for humanity, for creation, but we, even in our culture today, and most cultures around the world, still hold on to some semblance of a six-day work week and then a Sabbath, even though we've lost that greatly, any, any spiritual significance or, or real understanding of that. Uh, the residual effects of that are still felt in our culture. Okay. So that's the first aspect. God works and we imitate God's work. The second is God transfers the duty of building his kingdom. So God transfers the duty of building his kingdom to Adam. So God creates for six days, he rests, and then he charges Adam with continuing his work. And this is part of the cultural mandate. This will come up later in the class. 
the cultural mandate which God gave to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, take dominion, and so on. That mandate is coupled with this idea of follow the pattern of my creation. So follow the pattern in which I created, which you've observed me sustain and protect. And you now have a blueprint of how you are to go forward in stewarding my creation. So God not only transfers the pattern, but he also transfers a small portion of his authority, and, and I would say a small portion of his divine prerogative. Now we'll get, I'm going to get a little bit more into this, but the divine prerogative is essentially that God can do with his creation as he wills. Now obviously we know that God isn't a liar, he isn't uh, evil. So he, he, his creation and the way he interacts with his creation is good. It is a blessing. Adam learns from that, or he is supposed to learn from that. But God actually transfers some of his authority and his prerogative to do with creation as he wills. He transfers that to Adam. So the, I, have, I have the joke where I tell my boys and my wife that I want to get a, a, a bumper sticker that says, you know, Genesis I think it's 2.16 or something, or not 16, but one of the, whatever passage it is, where it says, taking dominion, and it's a picture of a little cartoon boy with his foot over a spider, right? And the idea is that we might say, oh, well, the boy shouldn't squash a spider like that. Well, it's like, well, if that spider's in the house, and potentially it could create a problem, that little boy has all the right in the world, even a divine right, to squish that spider and take dominion where he's supposed to take dominion. So this is something that uh, our culture has lost greatly. Um, the notion that uh, we are actually the stewards and the rulers over creation. The world today tells us that we're the parasite. We're the problem. We are the enemy of creation. That there's nature and then there's man and man is somehow the problem. There's na we just need to leave nature alone and mankind, by limiting mankind's activity, we learn the very opposite from the creation account, that in fact, God put us here to steward, to tend, to keep creation, and creation is actually more beautiful and more fruitful when we fulfill that duty. Okay. It's, uh, I think even worse than that, they would have us worship the creation. Yes, precisely. Yeah, it even goes worse. Yeah, it even goes even further where now, all of a sudden, instead of even making man God, so we've supplanted God with ourselves, now we've gone even further, where we've demoted ourselves and made creation God over ourselves. Yes. It, it, goes, it goes on and on. All right. Um, okay, and now we're going to turn to Genesis 2 verses 5 through 9, and this is still in the vein of God's creative work, how he works. And Adam now is actually able to, Adam has been created at this point, and now he's able to actually watch God do this. So there's an important note here in this passage. This is where God uh, creates Adam, and then he places him in the garden, and God actually creates Adam first, and then builds the garden for Adam. So Adam is able to watch God building the garden and thus learn from him. So verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, 
For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So there he creates Adam. And then the man became a living creature. And the Lord God then planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there, Adam is created first, and then God creates a dwelling for Adam, and Adam observes God doing this. So here we have not only Adam learning the pattern of God's creation, but precisely how God is organizing things. So we might ask the question, how did Adam know how to, once he's, once he's expelled from the garden after the fall, how does he know how to till the land? How does he know how to work the land? How does he know how to survive? If, if we think of this notion of the garden is that he's just literally laying in a leaf hammock, not doing a thing. But we, when we understand it correctly, it's like, no, no, he's actually watching God if you will, organize the plants, till the garden. Now we don't know, you know, this is where a speculation again. Um, it, Christ obviously is the word of God. Christ is the one through whom God is creating the world. We don't know if Christ is actually the one who is physically there <coughs> with Adam, and Adam is actually watching the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son, till the garden. So we might think of, oh, this is all just happening, I don't know, just sort of spontaneously. But perhaps there is a tangible element to it here, where he is physically watching God walk, because it says he walked and talked with God. Well, how does he do that unless God has some type of corporeal essence in which Adam can understand it in that sense? Um, so it's, it's very interesting to think that Adam is not merely learning these things conceptually only. He's seeing them being worked out. And that's the important part. And that's what allows him then to be able to work creation fruitfully even after the fall. So he was clearly a very intelligent man. God imparted very much wisdom to Adam. So he wasn't just uh, ignorant and foolish to how the ground operated, how, how deep to plant things, and how to water them, and um, why they needed those sustaining nutrients. Okay. So he instructs Adam on how to build his home and to sustain the garden. All right, moving on. Um, the third element is in regard to the trees. This is a very interesting study. If you ever wanted to get pretty far afield, just start studying the trees in Genesis, and indeed all the trees throughout Scripture. Um, yeah, I've, I've preached a couple sermons on biblical metaphors. The idea of studying you know, God as this particular imagery. Well, you can study... God as a tree, or Christ as a tree, and that is extremely detailed. And then beyond that, you can just study trees in Scripture. And I'm sure there are commentaries 
volumes of commentaries that have been written on this understanding of the significance and the imagery of truths. And we, we see that in the previous verses we just read. We have the uh, God plants the trees that are pleasant to the sight and good for food. So there's two, two types of trees or possibly a combination of the two. And then the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what you have is you have trees that are pleasant to the sight. What did I do? Oh, I'm left. Uh, good for food. And then you have the two named trees. So the named trees are obviously the tree of life and good and evil. The knowledge of good. So, depending on who you study under, who you who you go to for your resource. You're either going to find uh, two types of trees, which are essentially the tree of life. They're going to focus just on the tree of life and just on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or you'll see a threefold breakdown where they break it from the, as I have here, the, the trees that are pleasant to the sight, trees that are good for food, and trees that are named. And the reason why there's that threefold breakdown, one of the reasons, is that this also is instructing Adam and instructing us how God creates, how God has formed his kingdom. So God is not merely, or not, not even merely, God is not a utilitarian. God is not based just, or, or focused just on pragmatism, as we often are in our culture. I don't care what it looks like necessarily, as long as it functions. We see this throughout history. Now we've come into the modern era, and our construction just looks like a bunch of boxes stacked on top of each other, right? Stainless steel, everything glass, everything straight, flat, polished. There's really no beauty there. We might say there's a type of aesthetic, but there's really no beauty. We can go back four or five hundred years ago, and how did they build churches? We look at those churches, these cathedrals, and we're just, wow. We, we don't even know how to build that way anymore. Everything is curved edges. Everything is intricately carved and intricately detailed. So they had a, I would say, a better, a more robust understanding of beauty. Whereas today, that sense of beauty is being lost a little bit or, or twisted. So, first, God creates trees and plants and indeed many things in creation. If you've ever seen certain types of hummingbirds or certain types of butterflies... It's very clear. God makes some things just because they're cool looking. He's not interested just in their functionality. Right? And not every single animal just looks like a crow or just looks like a bird of prey. We have animals in creation and, and plants and trees that the, the atheistic scientists are just bewildered at why on earth they would ever evolve to have such... Uh, crazy combinations of, of displays and intricacy. Well, that's because God isn't just interested in function. He's also interested in form. So he creates, from the very beginning, things that are merely pleasant to the eye. 
So in the garden, there are trees that aren't bearing fruit that are just beautiful. And Adam understands that. Then, obviously, God creates trees that are not only beautiful, but also good for food. So Adam is learning, we can see he's learning how he is to build his kingdom, or not his kingdom, but he's, how he is to continue building God's kingdom. That there is a place for beauty and aesthetic, there's a place, a proper place for good food, for pleasurable food, not merely, you know, we don't just eat protein slabs, you know, tasteless, uh, bland uh, protein bars. Right? We can rejoice and glorify in a delicious, well-cooked, well-seasoned steak. We can rejoice and glorify in, uh, in pastries and things like that. And indeed, we find this in the Reformed tradition and in our own CREC. This is why we have Heidelfest. Heidelfest is very much an extension. It's an expression of our celebration of the good things that God has put into this world, right? Beer, tobacco, good food, good, uh, good, friend, uh, good um, uh, company, right? Songs, music, playing games. These things are all good. They are pleasurable. None of those things that I just listed have a real uh, function as far as they're not crucial to surviving. And this is something that... Uh, you know, it goes in the face of our, of our modern contemporary idea of, of uh, where mankind came from. We're taught that mankind came from hunter-gatherers who were only focused in function. They were just trying to survive. That's all they were trying to do. They didn't care about how things looked. They didn't care about what they wore. They didn't care about the order and structure of creation. That's what we're being taught from the world. Well, in fact, we read the very opposite in Scripture. From the very beginning, before Adam is even around, God is creating things that are beautiful simply because they're beautiful. And he's creating things that are good and pleasurable for mankind. And then thirdly, so those are the first two categories. Thirdly, we have the two named trees. Now these are, I am by no means going to fully articulate the significance and what exactly the tree of life is and what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. But we can infer, if we put them in one category of named trees, we would say this is God establishing the law, establishing the rules and the curses and blessings, the blessings and curses for the covenant. So if you keep the covenant, you have life. If Adam would have kept the covenant, he would have had access to the tree of life. He would have lived forever. The, knowledge, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in some sense, is a prototypal uh, law. He's giving Adam a law to adhere to, to test Adam's obedience, to test his faithfulness. So we'll get to that more uh, towards the end. But that's a, uh, a threefold breakdown of the trees in the garden. And I think it serves uh, us understanding Genesis very well because of that, the insight into seeing how God creates uh, in the narrative, he's not just creating in a sense of just creating function. He's creating beauty, he's creating goodness, and he's establishing his word through these two treats. He's beginning to establish the law and how man is to obey God. Um, and that really is the fullness of creation seen in those three treats. 
Two types of trees. Okay. Any questions? Move on. We're gonna get to the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I hope we'll see how much time I have. Yes, Emily, you have a question. Very good. All right. <clears throat> Let's see. Okay, so uh, Genesis chapter two, verse fifteen through seventeen. Um, this is uh, God again telling Adam that. Uh, what his mandate is, but also now God gives him the prohibition, the single prohibition in this narrative. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, including the tree of life, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. So there is the first prohibition. And this is why I named, we, we categorized the, the named trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that category. Because now we have, essentially, the very first law. The very first law of the covenant. <clears throat> Alright. Moving on. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Okay, so here is the account of the creation of Eve. And here, Adam is trained for another aspect of building God's kingdom, and that is marriage and family life. So, the marriage union... The marriage union was invented by God in this creation account in Genesis chapter 2. So beginning or picking up at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. While he slept he took, a, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And that rib, the rib that the Lord God had taken, he formed into the woman and brought her to the man. So there's a few things going on there. First, Adam is charged with naming all the animals, which is part of stewarding and keeping the garden. He is actually sorting and learning how God has created creation, how he's created these various animals and what their function and purposes are and how beautiful they are. So he is seeing, he is learning, again, those three aspects. How are these things created? What's their purpose? What's their function? And look at how beautiful they are. And he's learning to call them by their name. He's learning to call them appropriately. But through that process, he sees that these animals all have mates. He sees that there are two of each kind. He's saying, okay, I see a, I see a bull elk, if you will, and a cow elk. And I see a uh, male hummingbird and a female hummingbird. And he's realizing that there's this balance, there's these uh, uh, mates for these animals which allow them to reproduce 
and create more, and then therefore ex- extend and continue to build God's creation. There was one uh, commentator who said that God answered Adam's silent prayer at this time. So Adam is naming the animals, and he's realizing slowly as he's doing this, where is my helpmate? Where is my mate? And he's, and so God. It doesn't say that Adam ever actually asked God, and it's it's implied in the text that Adam does not ask God. But it's we can infer that Adam perhaps is beginning to understand in his heart and to desire in his heart a helpmate. And this is precisely why God answers that prayer or answers that silent request, if you will, and provides for him a wife. So Adam is not only continuing to understand, to grow and understand how God creates and then how for, uh, how therefore he should create, but now he's given a wife so that he can fulfill his purpose of being fruitful and multiplying. So he's trained in family life. And Adam is joined to Eve, and they become one flesh. And the interesting thing uh, is that in Genesis 2, verse 24, we have the institution of the marriage covenant. And obviously Moses is the author of Genesis. So Moses is putting this in uh, on purpose because he understands that in this moment, God has established and created the covenant of marriage. And it says in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Adam and Eve are united in marriage, and therefore they are capable now of extending and building God's kingdom. So we see the pattern here. God has created, and Adam is being instructed in almost every way how he is to then build his build God's kingdom. How he is to extend the covenant between he and God. Now the interesting thing, also, another interesting element, is that the marriage covenant, the marriage union, precedes the fall. I had, I had sort of either forgotten or missed that point, but upon studying for this class, I was reminded, ah yes, the marriage union, the, the, that institution of human relationship, precedes the fall. So it actually, that's very rare. There are very few human institutions or human uh, relationships where there aren't any other ones, right? So marriage is the only union, the only uh, human relationship that precedes the fall. I thought that was very interesting. There's probably much more to be said on that note. Uh, So, moving on, as I said, chapter 2 uh, is a bit of a backtrack from the, the you have the full creation account from chapter one all seven days and then chapter two we backtrack so all of chapter two everything we've just gone through there is in light of something that occurs or that is recorded in chapter one and that is as I mentioned the cultural mandate so in Genesis one chapter twenty eight we have this. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here is the cultural mandate, as it's called. Adam is instructed 
or is char- not instructed rather, he is commanded to go and be fruitful and to take dominion over the earth. So all the rest of this is centered and focused around that context. What's the purpose for which Adam is building God's kingdom? To be fruitful and multiply and to cover and to take dominion over the earth. And so chapter two is, this is how you do that. Here's what I want you to do. Be fruitful and multiply and fill and cover the earth. And then chapter two, this is how you are to accomplish it. So what do we see in that? We see that God first gives his law, gives his commands of the covenant, and then he provides instructions in how to fulfill that covenant. And we see this not only through the rest of the Old Testament, God commands Moses, he gives the law to Moses, and then, or sorry, he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, and then he gives him the law, this is how you are to really fill that out. Here's how you fulfill the chart, the commands that I've given to you. And again, we see this in the New Testament. Christ gives the great commission to the, to the disciples, and then what? The, he, they, uh, through the Holy Spirit, they are reminded and instructed and learn exactly how they are to fulfill the great commission. So we can see in this instance, the cultural mandate in Genesis 1.28 is the very first great commission. It's the very first Great Commission. Um, there's also uh, a point uh, that I was studying. Um, there's two. There's two really good sermons on this, uh, which I used as uh, sort of kickstarters for me. But one of them is by Doug Wilson, and it's just on Genesis 2 verse 17. The other one is on uh, from uh, Vodi Bakum, and he talks about the trees in Genesis. Um, but I can't remember which one of them uh, uh, mentions this point. But regarding the cultural mandate, um, that we are called to uh, the idea of taking dominion of the earth is not merely, um, or not, it's essentially, they challenge the view of whether or not. Uh, I know whether or not the um, the current modern understanding of being subservient to nature. So we are charged to take dominion and to subdue all of creation. And so we emphasize, uh, or we have empathy. We understand when the modern person says we ought to protect the whales or we ought to protect I don't know some other animal. We understand. Yes, we ought to do that because we were created as the authority over those things. So that's what our charge is to do. That person, however, says we ought to do that because we're the problem. And so we can see that twisting, that misunderstanding of the cultural mandate. And so it is the uh, first great commission to build God's kingdom on earth. And we learn from the Lord exactly how we are to do that. Okay, so we will conclude by looking a little bit at the what exactly is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Uh, so it says 
or rather, uh, this is what Satan said to Eve when he tempted her. He said, for God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree, excuse me, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So there we learn something about the tree. It is good for food, it's a delight to the eyes, and it has the capability of making one wise. So we would say that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil actually fits all three of those categories. It's pleasant to the eye, it's good for food. Sorry, you believe you've come coming a little late, so you're probably like, what is he talking about? Uh, it's pleasant to the eye, it's good for food, and it's good for imparting wisdom. So we understand that the tree, in some sense, is imparting wisdom. And that's why uh, she is tempted to take of it. Now, there are, uh, I will say this, there's a large portion of evangelical Christianity who says that, the, that uh, either the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in that most basic sense, that Adam and Eve had no conception of right and wrong or obedience and disobedience before they ate of the tree. Which, if that's the case, that kind of falls flat immediately because if they have no conception or no capability of being disobedient, they have to eat of the tree in order to understand what obedience and disobedience is. How are they disobedient in the first place? Adam is breaking covenant before he even actually eats of the fruit. He's letting his... It's set in, the, in the narrative, we understand, Adam is standing right there. He's letting his wife be tempted by Satan or by the, uh, by the serpent. He's letting all this stuff happen. He lets her eat first. You can almost imagine Adam standing back saying, I'm going to see what happens here. I'm going, to let her, I'm going to let her take this bullet for the team and see what happens. Maybe God will just make a new one for me if, if she keels over, right? Well, that, that is not righteous behavior. That is not a, a faithful attitude right there. And I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but we understand that's what Adam, in a sense, is doing here. So is it the, is it the case that before... They ate of the tree. They had no conception of right and wrong, obedience or disobedience, faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Well, clearly they did. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to disobey. They wouldn't have fallen. So that clearly cannot be the case. The knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil isn't a, the tree of the, of the ability and the capability to sin. They sinned as they were eating of the fruit. Uh, so it must be something different. And this is where uh, theologians have used a very pointed term, and they have called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as pedagogical. Pedagogical, which is just a $20 word for, uh, it's a teaching moment. So it's a teaching element or a teaching moment. It's a little more complex than that, but that'll work for us. So what this says 
And this is what most Reformed uh, ministers and, and uh, commentators hold, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil isn't simply that notion of uh, they're given the capability of knowing right and wrong now. Rather, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is understanding and also a teaching element to show them, to actually give them teeth to what they understood as obedience and disobedience. So they understood obedience and disobedience, faithfulness and unfaithfulness, and the tree, therefore, was the living, physical manifestation of that charge, to remain faithful and to remain obedient to God. So the tree was the test. Now, uh, several commentators that I was reading through uh, all agreed on the point that um, in the narrative there's no indication that the prohibition to eat from the tree was permanent. So there was no, pro there was no indication that, that that prohibition was going to be permanent, forever, ongoing. Rather, it was temporary. So if they had passed this test, if they had rejected the serpent's lies, if they had obeyed God and remained faithful to God, then they actually would have been given access to this tree. And obviously history would be very different if that had been the case. Um, but they don't, obviously. They fail at this moment. They are tested and tempted by Satan. That's an important note. God is not the one that is testing or tempting them. However, if we think about this narrative in relationship to Job, we can, we can ask the question, how did the serpent, as I mentioned, how did the serpent get into the garden? Is he supposed to be there? Well, he hasn't been there the whole time, so how did he get in? Well, clearly, we, if we understand the book of Job as well, God is allowing the, the serpent to come in and perform this test. So, the larger question, which is really the question of evil, right? Why does God allow these things to happen? That's, that's a big question uh, for uh, new Christians in particular. Why did God create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why didn't he just create Adam and Eve and just leave it at that? Why did he have to test them? Why did he have to put their faith and test their obedience? Why did he have to allow or cause that to happen? Right? Well, that's a very good question. The question for that is, first of all, um, as I like to say, when people ask, uh, why does God, I mean, why does God do anything? Why does God allow evil to happen? Or why does God allow certain people to fall away? Or, or indeed, why does he allow certain people to be damned for all eternity? Well, the, the, the simple and quick answer that I like to give, which is very unsatisfying for most people, is that because he can, that's his prerogative, right? He gets to, that's his authority. Why can the clay say to the potter, right? You, why have you made me this way? Well, we don't. And we understand that, again, if you read Job, God, uh, excuse me, Job asks God a bunch of questions, and God never answers him. He just asks Job questions. So the, the, the idea is, God is above questioning on this point. We don't get to question his uh, moral reasonings. 
Uh, the other way I put it is that if, if you think of, of life and morality as like a basketball game, God is the referee. Can the referee travel? No. Can he foul anyone? No, he's above the rules. He's enforcing the rules. So we might say, oh, well, that's not good. That's not, how can, why would God allow those things to happen? Well, he, he has his purposes. So there's an element of mystery here. But also, there's this important element. So we'll conclude with this. Here is why God created the tree in the garden. This is why he allowed sin to enter the world. This is why he allows, if you want to look at it this way, this is why he allows evil to take place. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 24. So this is answering, why does God allow things to happen the way they do? Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whoever, whoever, whomever he wills. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? Who can resist God's will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And here's the important part. In order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So there we have it. The purpose of God's sovereign will, why God established these things, why God formed creation the way he does, why he interacts and forms history the way he does, is so that his glory and his majesty will be on display. Now we might say, well that's not the way I would do it. But the point is, that then is implying we would want it for our glory. So this is, in a sense, what Eve, Adam and Eve did in the fall, is they said, rather than glorifying our Creator, rather than glorifying God, through the cultural mandate, through continuing to build His kingdom, Eve said, I want glory for myself, in the sense of wisdom and knowledge. I want to be like God, so I will eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we can see Romans is teaching us, again, reaffirming the purpose of mankind, the purpose of the church, the purpose of the saints is to glorify our God in heaven. The first sin of man was a twisting and a turning of that. We want to then glorify ourselves. This is why uh, certain 
theologians have, have boiled it down to uh, pretty much every sin eventually gets back to idolatry. Every sin, every type of sin, is a subcategory of idolatry. No matter what you're doing, no matter which commandment you're breaking, you ultimately are breaking the first commandment. Because you're putting something else in the place of God, or you're putting yourself in the place of God. You're seeking the glory of something other than God, or you're seeking your own glory. And that's what we're instructed, not only in Genesis, but in, in Romans here, and throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. So that is how uh, we are to imitate God in his creation account. This is how Adam learned to imitate God, is that uh, he is working for the glory of God. And this is precisely one last note. Eve disobeyed at a tree by trying to take glory for herself and also to become equal with God. Is what does Satan say to her? If you eat of this, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. She says, sounds good to me. I want that power. I want that ability. So you have the disobedience at the first tree. And now we fast forward to Christ, who says what? He does not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That notion of grasping is the same notion of taking, taking the fruit. Christ did not see equality with God something to be grasped, right? He humbles himself and is faithful and obedient to the Father. So if the bookends of creation, the, book, uh, the bookends of salvific history are the disobedience at a tree, that is Adam's disobedience and breaking of the covenant at a tree, and Christ's faithful obedience on a tree. So, any other questions? I think that'll do it. Very good.